you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. There are those passages that you read, and when you read them, you feel your heart being lifted, you are comforted by the love of Jesus, you feel compelled to put them on a coffee mug or on a t-shirt. This isn't one of those passages. Um, as we read it, it was kind of like, Jesus, man, this is a little bit rough. And like I explained to you guys before, James pulls no punches, especially when it's around uh, things that he's passionate about and things he cares deeply for. Uh, he speaks passionately and in your face. I've said that the best way to think about James is as a coach. Um, if any of you have had athletics before, your coach is sometimes your best friend. He's there to encourage you when you didn't play your best or whatever. And he's also there to tell you uh, when you're messing up. And sometimes it comes with a little bit of sting. It comes with a little bit of passion on the end of it, you know. But all in efforts to uh, help you see who it is you're supposed to become, how it is you're supposed to live, etc. And so James is there kind of com- confronting us, standing us in the face, a passage like this, I like to call a gut punch passage, right? Because as you're going through the scripture, it confronts you. It causes you to get a good look at yourself for who you actually are. This kind of a moment is what I, saw, what I like to also call a front-facing camera moment. Has this happened to you when you're about to take a photo of something and the camera's actually looking at you and not what you're looking at? And you get a, you get a look and what you really look like, and oh my gosh, you know, it's like, who let me leave the house like this, right? Who gave permission to look like this? Or if you're ever like in this mode where you're looking down on your phone, and it gets you, and it gets the triple chin, and you're, you're horrified, you're traumatized, that, this is one of these moments in the scriptures. Now, as you can see from the teaching text, today's conversation, today's sermon is around money. Specifically, a short but powerful word from James on the danger of being rich and the deceitfulness of wealth. And when we talk about money, I know people in the room get weary. Some of you are thinking, all right, here it goes, right? It was nice while it lasted, everybody. This place seemed to be cool, but here comes the talk, right? Here comes where the offering paid's going to get passed around, the little guilt trip. I'm going to show you a montage of people who are worse off than you, right, to make you feel bad or whatever. That's not going to happen. Don't worry. You don't have to worry. That's not going to happen here this morning. But I do need to provide a few uh, disclaimers. So one, We're not after your money or anything like that. Here at Zion, we believe, if you believe in the work that God is doing here, you will partner with us. Uh, We don't pass an offering plate here. We have our Build the House station where it's between you and the Lord, how you give, and you can also give available online. But the second thing we must understand is this. The scriptures have a lot to say about money. Jesus had a lot to say about money. And to follow him doesn't mean just to take the teachings we like and enjoy and disregard the ones we do not, but it means to submit our lives underneath the teaching and authority of Jesus in all aspects of life. 
You see, I find it when I challenge our church to forgive those people who've wronged them, there's not a lot of kickback. When I challenge people to, you know, love our enemies or to um, uh, get involved in community groups or anything like that, no, people have no problem. If I, if I call people to different standards of living, there's no problem. But the second we talk about money, all of a sudden my motives are corrupt. Oh, I knew it. He's just here to get our money. Hold your wallets, everybody. But Jesus had much to say about money and much to say about its impact on our lives. Now, to address the elephant in the room, the church has had a very complicated history with money. And we see in the church a spectrum. I have a slide for you guys that right behind me. There's really two sides of the spectrum. One side is poverty and the other side is prosperity. So there's common teaching called poverty theology. There are sects within the, within the church that teach that a biblical vision for finances is to adopt a life of poverty. That followers of Jesus are to sell everything they own and live in poverty and try to model that way of living and to be like Jesus. Um, they believe that sanctification, the process by which we become more like Jesus, can only happen through poverty. Now, this sect is small. You can see for obvious reasons why it's not popular, uh, but it is prevalent. Um, they exist, and they, they make the same error, I believe, that the other side does just a little bit differently. Now, there are plenty of texts that support their view of being weary of money and living generously, but you will be very hard-pressed to find where Jesus commands everyone to sell everything. From all of our research in the scriptures, he's only told a select few to do that, specifically one in mind, the rich young ruler. Now, um, they take passages where uh, Jesus says that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, and they say those kind of things, and this confirms the poverty theology, but what they ignore is other passages like in Luke 8 where it says that all of Jesus' ministry was funded by wealthy women, right? So you kind of have like Jesus is calling people to this life of poverty from their theology, but at the same time, his whole thing is funded by wealthy women. So kind of which one is it, right? And then so that's one dynamic of things. The other side is prosperity theology, and these are the most notorious and famous. You've probably heard and seen the stories about pastors coming up here and asking for a jet and things of that nature. There are pastors who come up and teach from the pulpit, and they're dressed in $20,000 clothes and shoes and jewelry and kind of this extravagance. Um, these people are notorious and famous. Now, there's a lot to unpack there with prosperity theology, but what we want to come down to, the, the key idea today is the idea around finances, that their theology is that God exists essentially to bless you financially, and that the end goal for you to be, for the end goal for you as a follower of Jesus is to be wealthy and have, healthy and happy, and they, uh, they, there is so much in the scriptures that refutes this ideology. Frankly, You've seen people on the TV who are asking for this money and asking for things like that, and there's entire Instagram accounts that are calling these people out. One of my favorites is Preachers and Sneakers, where they call out uh, pastors for wearing incredibly expensive shoes and list the price tags next to the shoes. So it's pretty shocking. It's pretty harsh. Um, but their theology essentially teaches this, that the primary motivation for giving is for God to give back to you, right? So they say, if you trust God with $1,000, God will turn around and bless you with $10,000, so give your donation today, 1-800-whatever-whatever, right? And they go through the whole spiel. You're laughing because you went awake at 2 a.m., you know, opened your eyes, and you've seen the guy, right now, the Lord is telling you to give us whatever, right? You've seen it, right? 
So there, again, there's a lot to say here, but what I want to say is that both of these stream, stream, extremes not only misrepresent the heart of Jesus, but contradict the scriptures and are unhelpful and fundamentally missing the call for followers of Jesus and how we handle our finances. The Lord does not call us to poverty nor riches, but rather, I believe uh, there's a better way forward. One way that I would say this forward is through faithful stewardship and radical generosity. Through faithful stewardship and radical generosity. Now, it's important to know, money is neither, neither bad nor good. It's amoral. It's neither bad nor good. It's simply a tool. The question is, what must, what must we do as followers of Jesus to faithfully utilize the tool that God has given us to bring honor to him? So people misquote a passage in Timothy often. They say money is the root of all evil. That's not actually what the scripture says. It is money is a root of all kinds of different evils, right? The reality is that money has this pull, this tug on human beings. And so this morning, what I want to do is lay before us a vision of faithful stewardship, taking the things that God has entrusted with us and faithfully using them to glorify him and radical generosity, being people who are marked by generosity in the way that we give in opposition to the God of money and the deceitfulness of wealth. Let's first get into the God of money. Now, in America, we have a complicated and dynamic history with finances and with wealth. The larger cultural story that we live in has a tremendous impact on how we view money and what we define as success. We live in a saturated consumer society that has a strong pull on every single person in this room. And the spirit of consumerism was really erupted onto the scene after World War II. Now think about this. The generation before World War II was who? Those who lived through the Great Depression those who lived through that moment in history. And these individuals built their entire lives around contentment and thriftiness as there was so much economic fallout. Now, after World War II, the economic landscape of America changed forever. As men were fighting overseas, this was the first time that women really entered into the workforce in full swing. So homes now had two uh, breadwinners to be able to bring in finances. Now, also remember, in World War II, we were the only country that didn't have uh, a war fought on our soil. So our infrastructure was great, was fine, is intact. As the rest of the world was building, we were already set in place. And now we had people who were, we had two different jobs, two different incomes coming into the home. So all, there was this huge flow of cash. Now, the mindset was still within the people. Save our money. We never know what happens. Conservatives. So then came this eruption that these people, the leaders and powers in play, realized that they had to get these people to change their mindset about thriftiness and about contentment and, and, and really push forward a culture of consumerism because they wanted to seize not only becoming a military superpower but an economic one as well. And so out came the flurry of advertisements. You see that right around that time, it was, it was abnormal for a family to have more than one car, but suddenly came out, families started having two cars and upgrading the washer and dryer or whatever when it didn't need it or whatever. All these different things that they were upgrading and moving forward and buying more and buying more and buying more advertisements for Coca-Cola and all these different things to really entice people to go and to spend this money so that the, the economic side of America would grow as well. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now... We are born into this consumeristic culture, and we are 
constantly being fed the lie, you need more, right? We are living in remarkable times where individuals are bombarded with messaging that you need more than what you have every single day. You need more money, you need more clothes, you need more time, you need more products, you need more, 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 more. You see, the average American is overwhelmed with over 5,000 advertisements a day. The average American is overwhelmed with 5,000 advertisements a day. Our information right now is being bought and sold for billions of dollars every year to specialize these ads based on our search history and things we've clicked on before. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't have a tinfoil hat, but we've all had scenarios where you've talked about something and suddenly what happened on your phone? An advertisement popped up for that very thing. Right? Twilight Zone moment, right? It could be coincidence, but my conversations with many people, they've all had a similar experience. Now, again, there's 5,000 a day, so maybe it was just coincidence. Again, not a conspiracy theorist. But we know, and things that have come out for certain, is that our data is being bought and sold. Facebook right now is going to the Supreme Court and is uh, getting interviewed by Congress and all this other stuff to, t to testify to the fact that they've done this in the past. Don't believe me? Just read some of the news articles on it. But... All of this being done to curate specifically to you the things you like, the things you click on. Every single thing you do online is being vigorously tracked from how long you stay on a single screen, what you click on, what you don't click on, what you pass by, how fast you pass it by. Every single metric is being measured. So they know how to perfectly curate a thing for you, an advertisement for you, things that you would like. There's all sorts of things when it comes to algorithms, etc. But what you need to know is this, not to freak anybody out, right? But what you need to know is you are constantly being told what to do with your money. You need the new car. You need the new house. You need the new iPhone. You need the new clothes. You need to do, have this different kinds of food or experiences, even if what you already have is more than enough. Each of us have honestly bought into the lie of more. How many of you have made those impulse buys? right, where you see something, you don't really need it, right, but it's just like, oh, but it's new, it's different, whatever, right, and then how many of us run to retail therapy when things get stressful, right, when things get chaotic or crazy, you're just like, you know what, we need to go shopping, right, that's like the result for everything, right, and so you go, you get new threads, you get new, and it gives this little bit of like, ah, you know, and it scratches that itch, but really what you're doing is we're buying into the lie that materials are the things that are going to bring us peace or joy or happiness or contentment. And so I know that this has been prevalent and I, I've fallen into the trap as myself. And so we need to be aware of something though, brothers and sisters. There is something more profound happening beneath the surface there and it's this. Beneath the practice of consumerism, is the God of money. Beneath the practice of consumerism is the God of money. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Notice, Jesus calls money a master, one that has the authority and the power over somebody. Now notice, Jesus doesn't use this about anything else other than money, comparing it to saying that it can be a God in and of itself. 
The thing that Jesus is worried about his disciples falling into is the trap of serving the God of wealth, money, and what, what other translations call mammon. Now, why is this so dangerous? Because money provides the illusion of security, power, and status. Money provides the illusion of security, power, and status. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 19. He says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because when you have money, it gives you the illusion of that security. You don't need to rely on God for anything. If you need something, you just go buy it. It gives you status to be able to manipulate interpersonal relationships to get people to do the things that you want them to do because you have this kind of, this, this influence with money and, and status that elevates you to a different peer that people treat you differently because they want something from you. Now, there are two reactions happening right now. The first is to dismiss and the second is to get defensive. First, dismissing. You might be thinking, rich. He ain't talking about me, you know. If this brother could see my bank account, he would surely not be talking about me, right? Now, if you roughly make $18,000 a year, which translates to about $9 an hour, if you make the same or more, you are in the top 15% of the world. To get you some numbers around that, to put that in perspective, if you make $9 an hour or more, you have more money, you make more money than 6.7 billion people on planet Earth right now. That means that, that, that there are only 7.9 billion and you make more than 6.7 billion of them at just $9 an hour. By all global standards, brothers and sisters, the people in this room are likely rich. A majority, a good chunk of the world still lives on less than $2 a day. Now, there's been great efforts to make that less and let, to make that uh, margin less and less and provide economic opportunities for people all around the world, but that's still a prevalent reality. So I know you might be thinking, he's not talking about me, but brothers and sisters, we live in one of the most lucrative nations in the world. And as a people, if you find yourself in that, in that group of $9 or more an hour, you are in the top 15% of the world. The next is for you to get defensive. Well, what are you asking me to do, bro? You want me just to sell all my possessions and give everything away? Like, if I'm broke, everybody's broke. This is never going to happen. What are you doing? Relax, okay? That's not what I'm asking for you to do. And so what I, what I am asking you to do really is to hear what James has to say. Just really humble yourself to listen to what the scripture authors have to say around this topic of money. Now, uh, that is the God of money. Now, I want to talk about the deceitfulness of wealth. There is a mindset that dominates the thinking when it comes to um, running after the God of money, and it is the scarcity mindset. It's this idea that there is not enough, therefore, I have to take care of me and my own. Now, you might be thinking this isn't prevalent. I want to draw your attention back to the early part of the pandemic, when there was suddenly this chaos of frenzy that the world was about to end, and people thought, you know what we need most? <laughs> Toilet paper. Because if the world is ending, you know what I need to have? Toilet paper, right? That is the one thing that's gonna get me through the pandemic. It's hilarious, but it happened. We all went to the grocery store and saw 
it was like ransacked. It was like you're in The Walking Dead or something. It was insane, right? That all these shelves were empty and people were carts were full. Side story, not related to the sermon. I saw this lady who had like 15 gallons of milk. And I thought to myself, if everything was about to end, why would milk be the thing that your cart is full of, right? All of that milk is going to spoil around the same time here in at least a couple of weeks at best, right? So you're going to stock up and have a lot of cereal? Like, I don't understand what the motivation behind that was. Like, canned goods make sense, but a bunch of milk was insanity to me. But teach their own, I guess. Um, I'm still curious to whether or not she got around to all 15 cartons, but... Now, we see this even happening now in the East Coast with this stuff happening with the pipeline that people were freaking out that there was going to be a gas shortage. So when everyone freaks out about a gas shortage, everyone thinks, you know what we need to do? Go get a ton of gas, you know? And so the lines are insane. People are filling up gas tanks, this, that, and whatever, and they caused a shortage by freaking out about a shortage. And so this is what we do as people, is it not? As we want to hoard for ourselves, we want to get for our own, we want to, we're worried about this. If you grew up in a house with siblings like I did, when there was like special treats around the house, this was the scarcity mindset, right? Like if mom bought like a thing of Chips Ahoy, it was was going down, you know? It's like I'm going to sit at this table and I'm going to pound two rows of these because if I don't, my sister's going to eat it, my brother's going to eat it or whatever, right? We know that was a sibling dynamic. And there you are scarfing 14 cookies and my mom is frustrated with us. Like you guys, if you would just each have a little bit and not take more than you need, you would all get some, right? But that was life with four kids in our house. And so this this is a reality though that's within the human condition is that we want to, we have this mentality that there's not enough, so I have to take, I have to grab, I have to seize for my own because I don't know what's going to happen. And this is not a biblical mindset. And this mindset has seeped its way into the church here in Jerusalem. So James starts with a heavy critique. Verse one, he says this, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. The first thing I need us to understand here is that we can be blinded by wealth. Now, the lie that money tells is that you always need more to be happy. Think about when you first started entering into the workforce, right? You're making minimum wage or whatever. You're thinking the first week you're like, I've done it, right? Working as a cook at McDonald's or whatever, a barista, whatever it is that you're doing, you're like, I finally have some money to my name, right? And then you start getting hit with the reality of bills and things like that. You're like, wait, you guys pay for all of this? Why do I need insurance on a car? You know, it's like this thing barely drives. I need to pay for it just in case I hit somebody in it. So we, we, we realize that quickly, oh, we don't have enough. And so we think about hitting the next tier and the next tier. But brothers and sisters, it never ends. No matter what fiscal tier you're at, there's always somebody who's next level than you, right? Even if you dream of the dream house or whatever, you think of the dream house now with a three-car garage or even more land or why can't we have heated tile on here or whatever it is, right? There's always more and always more to be chasing and there's always something a little bit ahead of where we are now whatever fiscal tier that we are at and so no matter where you find yourself on the socioeconomic ladder there's always somebody above you and the lie that money tells is you just need a little bit more just a little bit more just to get to that next place just to reach that next level just to have that next little bit of freedom and money if not handled thoughtfully and wisely can easily become a burden Right, to quote the notorious B.I.G., Mo money, mo what? Problems. Y'all need to repent listening to that music. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. But now what's happening in Jerusalem in the context of what's happening here with James? So 
there's this huge economic gap between the poor and the rich in Jerusalem. Herod the Great got his name Herod the Great because what he did was he built a lot of infrastructure quickly. And it was very, it was very uh, uh, proficient for his time. But how he did that was very underhanded and like swindly. So what he did is he basically increased the taxes insane on the poor. So if you wanted to sell a piece of fish, if you brought a piece of fish into land, uh, you had to pay net fees and trade fees and all these different things. And so you would barely have anything by the end of, by the end of you just trying to barely survive because Herod was taxing so heavily. And so what it did is it created this huge gap between the poor and the rich, and the rich became richer and the poor became poorer. And so what's happening is in this community, there are rich people and poor people, and the disparity is massive. And there's poor people in this community going without, and the rich people aren't helping. So you can see why James is a little frustrated. He's got people in his church who are starving, and people who have more than enough unwilling to budge or help. So he comes with that strong thing. He says, listen, rich people, weep and wail because misery is coming on you. Now, what James is speaking to here is the reality that there's a certain kind of judgment that will come upon those who neglect the poor. This is all over the scriptures that followers of Jesus are calling is to help the poor. And so James here is rebuking the rich in the community for neglecting their brothers and sisters in desperate need and, unwilling them, and their unwillingness to help. And he's calling them to repent because of how they are living is egregious. When we live for the God of money, when we fall underneath the deceitfulness of wealth, it can blind us. What we do is we turn a blind eye to those in need to continue to pursue down the path that we want to accumulate more for ourselves, and this breaks the heart of God. Our call is not to ignore the poor, but to sit with them and to extend compassion towards them. What happened in this community is this pursuit of money blinded the believers from seeing the error of their ways. And I'm sure they had all sorts of justifications. You hear it now as followers of Jesus wrestle being generous. Well, what are they going to do with the money? Are they going to go spend it on booze or drugs or this, that, or whatever? And followers of Jesus, our responsibility is not with what somebody does with a gift. Our responsibility is to be generous. He goes on to say, verse 2, Your wealth has rotted. Ma and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. What James is saying here to the rich is, candidly, they have too much stuff. So much stuff that moths are eating their clothes, that their fine expensive jewelry and, and, and decadence is, is wasting away, is becoming corroded because they're not even able to care for their really nice stuff because they have so much of it. This is also a problem with us. Many people have storage units because the storage areas in their house can't even hold the stuff they have anymore. They have to rent another place to hold the stuff that they can't hold any longer and has no place in their home, just in case. It's insane that we accumulate so much, so many things. We have so much stuff, and yet we're still constantly buying more. Now, James is rebuking them for their decadence that they went and spent all this money on expensive things without helping the people in their own community. And James says all of this, all this wealth is going to testify against them. 
We uh, have, there's a TV show, uh, Hoarders, if you've ever seen it, I don't know, TLC or something of that nature. Um, and we watch these in horror, right? We're like, how could they live like this? Like, what is going on? They have all this stuff, this, that, or whatever. And then in our garages, we can't pull our cars in because we have too much stuff. And there we are saying, like, how could they possibly live with all of this stuff everywhere? I couldn't possibly imagine. Henny, remember, stop by the storage shed to look for that thing or whatever. It's like the, the hypocrisy is there. The call for followers of Jesus is to live a life of simplicity. And I want to call us to really consider all the things that we have and consider donating and giving those things away that we do not need instead of hoarding and keeping for ourselves. He goes on to say this, verse four, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now a way a lot of people get wealthy is through underhanded business practices. What he's saying is happening here in this community is that there are rich farmers who are hiring help to come and help them plow their fields. They know how desperate they are for the money and they either refuse to pay them or underpay them greatly. And they say, well, it's just the sign of the time. Well, I had to charge you for this, that, or whatever. Well, you used my rake and there's a rake fee or whatever it is, right? And they're exploiting the poor. And James tells his community, the cries of those people are making it up to the Lord. In the same way, uh, think back to Genesis, the blood of Abel cried out to God in heaven from being murdered by his brother. That same language is being used here for this oppression of the poor. And so there are people who claim to be followers of Jesus who do business unethically. And that really shows who their God is. They would lie on their taxes, they would cheat, they would steal, they would underpay, they would manipulate situations so that they could have more wealth rather than be people of integrity. He goes on to say, verse five, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. He rebukes his community for living a life of luxury. Now, is James saying here you can't have nice things? No, nor does Jesus say that. What he's talking about is this overindulgence. He uses you're being fatted up like an animal going to the slaughter. Now, I mean, we don't live in too much of an agricultural place here, but a little bit. It's when you're going to, like, slaughter a cow or a pig, you beef them up. You throw in a couple extra servings. They got a couple extra plates. Why? Because the bigger they are, the more you get out of them. He's saying in the same way we're being fatted up by the God of money, not realizing we're overindulging, we're overeating, we're overconsuming. And he says, to being, and being led to the slaughter, not realizing that this, this, this wholehearted service towards money is costing us our soul. Didn't Jesus say, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his what? His soul. That in the pursuit of wealth and riches and money, you lose the very thing that you hold most dear. He goes on to say this, verse six, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. And the final rebuke here is their neglect of the poor. And he's saying, because they've neglected the poor, he says they're condemning them and murdering them and they're not even opposing them. When followers of Jesus fail to live to what he has called us to, we're, we're complicit with brothers and sisters starving to death hurting, losing, and ultimately 
dying, and we're held responsible for that. Think about what John says in 1 John 3, 16. He says, uh, 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has, and has no pity on them, how could the love of God be in that person? The call for followers of Jesus is to take care of the poor. There's no dismissing that. There's no refuting that. We could spend the rest of our service here reading scriptures after scriptures after scriptures of God's heart for the poor. Why Jesus overturned the tables in the temple was because of the oppression for the poor. Who Jesus often preached to and met and fed was the poor. It's all over. And our call as followers of Jesus is to continue the ministry of Jesus to the poor. So that's kind of the framework of the God of money and the deceitfulness of wealth. And now I want to contrast that with the teachings of Jesus and how followers of Jesus are to be marked by generosity. So let's first look here at the peace of abundance. Matthew 6, 25 through 30 says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not soar or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See the flowers of the field, see how the flower of the fields grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothed the grasses of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown to the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So the opposite of the scarcity mindset is this mindset of abundance. Now, woven into the fabric of creation is enough. It is teeming with life. Now, where things have gone horribly wrong is where people take more than what they need. Woven into the fabric of creation is more than abundance. There's more than enough. But what happens is when people take way more than they need. Jesus calls us to consider here the birds of the air. Now, you don't ever see a bird stressed out about a situation. He's not there laying in his nest, you know. Oh, my gosh, I'm so worried about this, that, or whatever. He's just living to, you know, eat and hang out, whatever. And you might be like, well, their cerebral cortex isn't quite as formulated as ours or whatever. Yes, we understand. But the whole thing is woven to the fabric of creation is not this anxiety of scarcity, this we're going to run out, we're not going to have enough. It's that they're always provided for. And that woven into that fabric of creation is that thing. And he uses the same analogy with the flowers. And he says, are you not much more valuable than they are? When we undo that mindset of scarcity, we realize we have peace. We're not so anxiously scratching and clawing for having more, having more than them, or, or getting the last little bit for ourselves. But we realize there's more than enough. I don't have to fight, scratch, or claw. There's more than enough here. Now, we've all been at parties where there wasn't enough food right? So there you are with your three pieces of cucumber and a little slice of sandwich, you know, hoping this lasts you. And then we've all been to like our grandparents' house or something where there's more than enough food, right? There's more than abundance. You have to undo the pants, let the belly hang out, and she's asked, do you want dessert? Serve it on up, right? Now, 
And one, you're like a little bit anxious and you're like giving your spouse a look like, McDonald's after this? Yeah, okay. You know, whatever, right? But in the other one, you're going into food coma. You can't even like, you know, you're trying to resurrect after you leave that place because you're so far gone. And one is just this element of peace. You're not worried. You're not stressed out. You're not planning and making arrangements. And None of those things. You're at peace because there's more than enough to go around. And this is the mindset that followers of Jesus are to have. Not that we overindulge, right? But that we have this peace that comes with reality that there's more than enough for us to go around. The next thing I want us to talk about is this, the freedom of contentment. Matthew 6, Jesus says this, So do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Pagans being somebody who doesn't follow God. And your heavenly Father knows that you need him, but instead, what do we do? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The call for follower of Jesus is not always striving to hoard and to have more, but to find contentment in what we've already been given. Is this not the temptation in the garden? Adam and Eve had all the trees of the garden to eat but one. But is this this one that the enemy caused them to focus on and said, look, God's holding out on you, ignoring the rest of the garden that was available to them. Is this not us? Oh, we have more than we need, but we don't have the thing that we want, right? We have more than we could ever possibly imagine. But you know what? We need the new car. We need the new house. We need the new whatever it is when what we have is more than enough. And what we don't realize is living that way is living in bondage to stuff because you'll do whatever it takes Make whatever financial sacrifices necessary to get that thing you want. And then guess what? A new one comes out next year. A different one in new colors next year. And so for followers of Jesus, we live in the freedom of contentment, meaning we have all we need in him. So he says the pagans run after and chase after and pursuing those things. Followers of Jesus are to run after the kingdom of God, the things that matter most. The next thing that Jesus calls us to with our finances is the mission to multiply. Matthew 6, he says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy. Think about James's critique to the church in Jerusalem. And where thieves break in and steal, but store, but store up for yourself treasures where? In my garage, no, in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Check this out. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says what you spend your money on is what's actually important to you. You really want to know what somebody values? Read their bank statement. That'll show the truth. We all talk a lot of things, we all say a lot of things, but the proof is in the pudding. And this is what Jesus says. Where your finances go is where your heart truly is. And so he encourages us to use our finances wisely. So not just to hoard and to store up for ourselves and have this massive savings account, right? And not to go and spend and splurge on all these unnecessary things, but to make kingdom investments. 
Think about the parable of the talents where Jesus uh, tells a story of, uh, of, of a rich man who gives talents to his servants to go and to utilize. And so one multiplies it by 10, the other one multiplies it by five, and one just buries it, right? Just puts it in a savings account. It's not going to make any money. It's not going to lose any money. We're going to be safe. And whenever the master comes back, he rebukes that servant, takes it from him, and gives it to the one who multiplied by 10 because there is a stewardship that was held accountable there. Now, there's so much to talk about in that parable. But what we have to understand is the money that we have been given is a gift for us to steward it is we are responsible for stewarding this gift and jesus calls us to make kingdom investments now what does that look like it looks like you utilizing your money for the things the spirit tells you to do whether that's giving generously to somebody in need, whether that's supporting a nonprofit, whether that's giving to a church, whatever that looks like, however the Spirit leads you to do, is when we look at our finances, we ask the Lord how he wants us to invest the money he's given to us. Our mentality we're thinking of finances is this, like, you know, traditionally the 10% is God's, 90% is ours to do whatever we want with. The reality is 100% of it's the Lord's. And we listen to him on how he wants us to utilize it. And sometimes the father wants to bless and says, you know what? We're going to steak dinner tonight, right? And sometimes the Lord calls us to bless others and say, look, we're going to use this money to give towards this, whatever, however it works. But the call for us is to make kingdom investments. And so these investments are first strategic, right? We think thoughtfully about how we're using our money and how we're utilizing those to bring God's kingdom further here on earth. They're sacrificial, which means it costs you something. That when we give, it has to cost you something, not just a little extra cheddar that we wouldn't even notice coming in or out, but it actually costs us something to give and that they're systematic, that, we're, that we're, we're planning these things out in accordance with our lives. The next thing I want us to discuss is the blessing of integrity, meaning this. Organization ran by, organizations run by followers of Jesus should be the best to work for, hands down. Nobody... Nobody should be better business owners than followers of Jesus. No one should be more generous with their employees. No one should be more kind to them, more understanding, more helpful. More... No one should have better ran businesses than followers of Jesus because we are, should be marked by generosity. So those of you who are managers or who in here own your own business or who are starting your own business, your lives are to be marked by generosity. And we should be the number one people on glass door to work for because of the way that we treat our employees. Right? The, the, the rebuke from James was that these were underpaying their employees. Followers of Jesus are, should be probably the best place to work, the most fiscally helpful, whatever, to their employees. And our business practices should be marked by financial integrity. That how we conduct our business is above reproach in all regards. No underhanded business taxes. No, well, it, they don't find out if we do it this. That is not the way of a follower of Jesus. The next thing is for us to make the commitment towards defiant generosity. That instead of being a people who hoard over for ourselves, we be a, a people committed to resisting this culture of consumerism through radical generosity. Through giving, through giving of our time, through giving of our money, through giving of our resources, to giving of information, that we are marked by people who just give. That's what separated the, church, the early church at the very beginning. The pagans were tight with their money and loose with their bodies. The followers of Jesus were tight with their bodies and loose with their money, helping anybody who ever had need and had a different ethic all the way about them. And so as followers of Jesus, we defy, we push against this culture of consumerism through generosity. 
And the last thing is that we have this calling to unwavering compassion for the poor. Acts 2 says this, all the believers were gathered together and had everything in common, and they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. When the Spirit erupts on Pentecost and the church is unleashed on the world, you want to know the mark of that? Generosity. That was happening in the community is there were people who were going without, and there were people who had more than enough, and they said, I'm going to sell these extra land, and I'm going to bring the money to the apostles, and they could divide it up amongst the people however they have need so that nobody goes without, right? And that was the whole issue with Ananias and Sapphira is that they lied about how much money they actually had, and there's a whole thing there that we don't have time to go to, right? But that, that was the whole thing that was happening there is the spirit was erupting, and it looked like a generous people calling to give, and so let's get really practical into practice. So the first thing for us as followers of Jesus is to do is to give gratitude first. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you thanked the Lord for a regular paycheck? When was the last time you thanked the Lord for just a regular paycheck? Right? Most often we have a grumbling spirit. They take out this much for taxes, right? Instead of, Lord, thank you. That I have a job, that I have a paycheck, that I have reliable money coming in, Lord, thank you. I know that every good and perfect gift comes from above. It's from you, Lord. And so first I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, take inventory of your life. It's easy to look at all the things you don't have, but man, give gratitude for the things you do have and watch how your perspective begins to change. Watch how the allure and the shimmer of shiny new fades away when you realize how precious the things are that you already have. The next thing is to give with radical generosity. I know when we give, we have the first number that comes into our head, and then there's the voice in the back of your head saying, hey, whoa, 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 you know, what if this happens, what if that, so you start to dial it back a little, dial it back a little, dial it, and then you come to like a nice conservative, this is pretty safe, you know, nothing bad will happen here, and you give that. You know, that's the flesh talking of this conserve and hoard and keep for myself. If the Lord speaks something to you, obey. And sometimes it's going to sound crazy and sometimes people are going to think you're crazy, but I tell you, Jesus said it is much better to give than to what? Receive. And you realize that thing is true. And that's not so you give extra so that the Lord will bless you 10 times if you give, right? But it's you realize that, man, when I'm able to help others, when I'm able to give, when I'm able to pour in, when I'm able to invest into the kingdom, it pays way more dividends than if I would have invested in myself. You want to help a brother or sister in need or getting to contribute to the work that God is doing has way more value in the kingdom economy than whatever it is our eyes were set on. The next thing for us is to give without grumbling. That when we give to the Lord or to others, it's not with a grumbling spirit. It's not, well, this better go to good use or whatever it is. But the scripture says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Can you imagine if the Lord gave to us like that? Well, I guess I'll give it to you. You know, you don't really deserve it or whatever. You know, this grumbling, complaining spirit or there goes $500 down the drain, whatever it would be, right? We give with a cheerful spirit, realizing we, it's not we have to give. It's not obli- we're not obligated to do that. We get to give, we get to partake in the work that God is doing. We get to bless others. And what a privilege that that is. You think people dying on their deathbed are thinking, oh, what's my 401k at? 
They have no cares for that. But how did I live my life? What was it marked by? And the last is to give in secret. There's a, a weird thing happening, and I think it's always happened, but it's pre- specifically prevalent on social media where people like take videos of themselves giving to people and they're like, oh, Corey, we're helping this guy out. And at first it seems like, oh, you're being cool. But actually what you're doing is like you're getting pity and, 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 and praise from other people and you're giving to be seen by others. And Jesus talks about those kind of people in Matthew 6. And he says, you know what their reward is? It's that. You got the praise, you got the clap of the hands, you got the comments on the feed, you got all those different things. And sometimes we can give with wrong motives. You know, we can give to want to be seen so that people be like, ah, oh, Andrew's just so generous, man. He just, he loves people so much and he gives so much. And oh, no, brother, you know, that's not me. The Lord just blesses, you know, or whatever. And really we're like, tell me more, you know. How awesome am I? Jesus says when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Just in, in total anonymity and total secrecy because when you give, you give to the Lord. It's to him. And he sees and he rewards and him alone. And so that's, why, that's our call for us. First is to give gratitude towards God. The next is to give with radical generosity. The next is to give without gumbling. And last is to give in secret. And so I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up. We're gonna close now. Um, and I just want you, to, I want you to deal with this with the spirit. Look, there's not gonna be, again, and now is not the time where we're like, and now the offering plate will go around to each one of you to decide. That's not happening here, okay? But we need to be people who not just talk about the stuff that Jesus talked about, but live this stuff out. That we're not just people who just hear the word and say, oh, good sermon, and then never not change the way that we live. And so as we enter this time of worship, I want to ask you to do business with the Lord. To ask the Lord about how you're spending your finances. To ask him to speak to you. If there's a person you're to give to, a person you're to be generous with, a person just to be aware of the spirit, uh, partnering with this church, partnering with a church, partnering with a organization, a nonprofit, man, as followers of Jesus, we're to be marked by generosity. And so I wanna ask you, as we worship, do business with the Lord. And just ask the question, God, is there anything you're calling me to do that I'm not doing? Am I being a faithful steward of the finances that you've given me? When I give, do I do it with radical generosity? Or do I do it with a grumbling spirit? And to just do business with him. And whatever he tells you to do, do it. Whatever he speaks to you, do it. And I know, I know you will be blessed. And no, not 10 times increase running down from heaven, but it is truly better to give than to receive. And you'll receive things that no money can measure in the gift of helping a brother or sister in need. Jesus, we invite you into this place here and now to speak, to move. Lord, forgive us for so often we think. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.